Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Room and Room Podcasts. Hey, really appreciate you joining us once again for another of our ruminant nutrition-themed podcasts. My name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a New Zealand-based veterinarian and nutritionist based in Lincoln, Canterbury, where I work with the PGG Rights and Seeds team. Perhaps you're new to our podcasts, or maybe you're a frequent flyer listener having already tuned into some of our previous episodes, but hey, either way, welcome. The backstory about these podcasts is that they're actually an offshoot from the Facebook group, The Room and Room. So that's got over 6,000 members now, and if you're not already a member of that group, do head over and uh, join in that Room and Room group if ruminant nutrition is your thing. So in this episode, we're going to be exploring all things to do with milk urea, specifically as milk urea relates to dairy cows, Uh, but we'll go off tangent from that topic on a couple of occasions. So milk urea is yet another of those numbers that you can uh, look at your docket uh, when your milk's picked up or jump onto your dairy company app and take a look at alongside all of those other milk quality numbers like milk protein, milk fat percentages and all those sorts of things. Like all those other numbers, we do receive these values from your milk company, whether you want those numbers or not. And given they're free, uh, we're always looking, I suppose, for ways to best interpret these numbers rather than just ignoring them. So milk urea is what we're going to focus on today and perhaps uh, we'll do another topic about interpretation of other aspects, particularly protein to fat ratio and things like that, another day. But anyway, back to milk urea. I guess we start things off first. Where does milk urea come from? Then we'll move on to how do we interpret milk urea and why sometimes the values might be relatively high. And then the other way around, sometimes they're quite low. What's driving that variation? The third point we'll cover off on is if we should consider doing anything, if milk urea levels are very low or very high, is it worthwhile trying to do something about it? Particularly for those of you with uh, a predominantly or fully pasture-based farm system, uh, quite often in those systems it might be a bit more problematic to try and do anything about levels being very high or very low. So let's kickstart this podcast off. Let's get the discussion going by first defining milk urea. What is it? Well, we'll even kind of back up a little bit further and say, what is urea? Most of you on farm probably more familiar with urea being uh, chucked out onto your pastures or forage crops, you know, to provide a source of nitrogen to those forages and grasses and the like. So we grow more of those yummy feeds for your dairy cows. Well, actually, urea at the back of your fruit truck is just the same in terms of what it is from a chemical point of view as the urea that we talk about in milk or blood or urine. Urea is just simply a really tiny molecule that's made up of nitrogen, it's made up of carbon, hydrogen and also an oxygen atom. So leaning back into your fertiliser knowledge further, that molecule contains 46 percent nitrogen with the rest of that coming from that carbon hydrogen and oxygen so yeah hold that thought 46 percent nitrogen uh, because we're going to need that value when we talk about different ways that milk urea 
or milk urea nitrogen is reported around the world. Uh, we'll go into that shortly. So unlike when we chuck urea out on your crops or pastures, the context that we're going to zoom in on today is how do we interpret the levels of urea in the milk of your dairy cows? Well, at the end of the day, why is urea in the blood milk or urine of animals or, or in our uh, blood or urine too, is that the liver, our liver, the liver of our dairy cows or any of our ruminant species is very clever at grabbing surplus nitrogen that's in the blood and converting it into urea. And once the liver has made urea out of your surplus nitrogen that we don't want in the blood, then that uh, urea is excreted by the clever kidneys. So it's quite cool, really. The liver is essentially getting rid of that nitrogen. And what it does, it takes uh, like nitrogen from ammonia in the blood it pairs up the single nitrogen from that ammonia with another nitrogen atom to make urea because urea contains two molecules of nitrogen. And all of that happens in a really complicated biochemistry process called the urea cycle inside the liver. And uh, trust me, you don't need to learn that urea cycle thing. I I remember um, rote learning it in second year vet school and then promptly forgot about it again. But that's, that's where it happens, the urea cycle. Now, the only take-home here with that liver really busily taking up spare nitrogen, kind of doing the rounds in the blood, is that the urea molecule flows around in the blood until it's taken out of circulation by the kidneys and uh, ends up in the urine and then then is urinated out. So every time a cow takes a pee, she urinates that urea out as part of the urine, kind of job done. That unwanted nitrogen is out the back end on the pasture and we'll all be very aware that obviously this isn't isn't ideal from an environmental point of view, uh, and we'll come back to that point shortly. So let's say if our New Zealand dairy cows um, are eating a diet that contains a heap of very high levels of crude protein, or, or nitrogen in other words, because uh, crude protein is just feed levels of nitrogen times 6.25, then if there's a heap of protein going in that the cow doesn't need for her maintenance requirements for protein or to go out as uh, milk protein, then that liver needs to get much busier and cranks up the activity of that urea cycle because there's too much ammonia flowing around in her blood and we want to get rid of that. So that's the whole idea is to take the toxins, which is ammonia if it builds up in very high levels, and like pee it out the back end ultimately. Now, we're not going to go back over the whole process of um, dietary protein breakdown in the rumen and all that stuff, because if you've not already listened to the first couple of our podcasts about basic ruminant nutrition, you can always just tune back in and find out more about what happens to, well, all the nutrients um, when digested by adult ruminants, but specifically protein. But look, wrapping it up in a nutshell, When a ruminant eats dietary protein, there's one or two things, remember, that happens in the rumen. First up, some of that dietary protein isn't broken down at all, so that sneaks through the rumen intact and arrives at the small intestines for digestion, just the same as we as non-ruminant animals, because we are animals, just the same as we digest proteins. Now, that proportion of the crude protein is called undergraded dietary protein, or Uh, UDP or sometimes escape or bypass protein. But then on the other hand, the rest of the dietary protein gets busted down, broken down into peptides, amino acids uh, and 
uh, non-protein nitrogen stuff, uh, ammonia particularly. Now, that ammonia is a tiny, tiny little simple molecule made up of just nitrogen and hydrogen. And while most of the species of rumen microbes are super clever at taking that ammonia and turning it back into microbial protein, sometimes though, and this is where it gets a bit tricky, if the diet contains really, really high levels of crude protein and all that protein contains a very high proportion of rumen degradable protein or RDP, that's the stuff that's broken down, there's simply too much ammonia floating around in the rumen for the microbes to quickly and effectively grab that ammonia and turn back into microbial protein. Or on the other hand, and particularly when we're talking about total mixed rations um, through a mixer wagon, if there's not enough fermentable energy uh, coming from carbohydrates, the microbes might not have enough energy to grab the ammonia and convert it uh, effectively back into microbial protein. Either either, it's kind of like, oh no, we start to get a build-up or accumulation in the rumen of too much ammonia. Now, too much ammonia would be fine if that ammonia behaved itself and actually stays put in the rumen, but no, unfortunately that's not the case, and higher levels of rumen ammonia will typically pass across the wall of the rumen and enters into the blood supply. And here's where the problems can start if we get an accumulation of not only high rumen ammonia, but also high blood ammonia. The reason we don't like that, if you're an animal or or us for the same matter, if we had inappropriately high levels of ammonia building up in our blood, is that ammonia is actually a toxin. So it's toxic to the tissues of the animal and none of those, uh, those animal tissues really appreciate light being exposed to high levels of ammonia. So, yeah, ammonia toxicity is a thing, and it can cause uh, different sign, clinical signs and ruminants depending on actual levels of blood ammonia, how long the tissues are exposed to ammonia, and how quickly the animal can get rid of that surplus ammonia uh, by using that urea cycle in the liver to convert ammonia into urea. So that's what the liver's main job is to do, is to furiously work hard to crank up the action or activity of that urea cycle in the liver to get rid of that surplus blood ammonia as quick as possible. The kidney also steps up and and does its very best too to excrete that surplus uh, urea that's pouring out of the liver. But sometimes the poor old kidney just can't keep up with urinary urea excretion and we actually get a build-up of urea in the blood. And if it's in the blood, it also ends up in the milk. That's why we can blood test animals. And in fact, uh, if your doctor's got a concern with your kidney or renal function, we get blood tested too, to measure the amount of urea in the blood. And that gives us, I guess, what we call a proxy or an estimate of uh, possibly higher levels than normal of ammonia in the blood, and that's why there's more urea there. Blood urea is quite stable uh, once it's in a, a test tube of blood, and it's easy to send away to a lab and test. But on the other hand, blood ammonia is quite tricky to keep stable in the test tube, so it's a bit more uh, difficult to test in the lab, and there's quite um, different processes to test that. So, yeah, we tend just to, to take um, blood urea samples and not so much uh, blood ammonia. That said, from a practical point of view, we don't really want to keep um, sticking needles in in our cows to to take blood samples to check for uh, too much urea in the blood. So 
that's where the milk comes in real handy. Um, and collecting milk from lactating dairy cows, and usually for most of our dairy companies here in New Zealand, that's simply as a bulk uh, tank or bulk vat sample that uh, every day the milk's picked up, we get a, a milky rare result. And that works really well uh, to give us an indication of how much urea is probably in the blood. And it's just as well that the urea molecule is a, is a little tiny molecule because it passes easily from the blood into all of the, the um, fluid in the tissues and back again. And fortunately for us, uh, that urea then can freely move backwards and forwards across the blood milk barrier. So leaving the blood to enter the udder and that's therefore a really good indication uh, of what's happening in the blood because blood urea and milk urea values are what we call highly correlated. So if the blood urea goes up, so does the milk. If the blood urea goes down, so does the milk urea level in the milk. So all of a sudden we've got something pretty helpful here and uh, if we take a, a bulk vat sample for the whole of the milking herd, we can get a feel for how much protein's getting broken down and whether we've got too much protein, too much rumen degradable protein as a proportion of total protein, uh, or indeed there's some other issues going on, such as not enough fermentable energy that's not usually a problem for pasture-fed cows, but maybe for when you're balancing total mixed rations. So it's quite a cool process, really, this milk urea, and it's quite useful. Just while we're on the topic of nitrogen and milk, actually with the total nitrogen in every litre of milk, urea is only a very tiny proportion of the total nitrogen found in milk. And as you might imagine, almost all of the nitrogen in milk is present as our valuable milk protein. So like, I don't know, 95% of total milk nitrogen is present as milk protein. So the other 5%, that balance um, is present as non protein nitrogen in the milk and so that's about five percent of milk nitrogen is present as non-protein nitrogen and of that five percent of total nitrogen in milk about half of that is made up of milk urea so long story short therefore of the total nitrogen we get in every litre of milk less than about 2.5 percent of it is present as milk urea so it's only a tiny fraction of the protein that's in the milk. Before move on to the next topic about how to interpret milk urea values, high or low, let's quickly just skim through some of the other factors other than dietary protein levels that can impact the concentration of milk urea. And we'll just limit this to, to um, bulk vat milk urea, not individual cow milk urea values, because that does change um, with a whole range of different factors. We'll just focus on the bulk stuff. Here in New Zealand, where still the majority of our herds are spring calving herds, we do have a slight issue in early lactation when we have, particularly when we have a tight calving spread, that a lot of fresh cows are coming into the herd all at once. And on average, milk urea levels are lower in early lactation, uh, when cows are just freshly calved than when they're at peak lactation. So, yeah, if we do have a tight calving spread in a um, spring calving herd, we do need to be careful concluding that the whole herd is deficient in dietary protein if maybe only half the cows are going in the vat. There are a lot of fresh cows because they will normally have a lower level of milk urea than at peak lactation. So if you are running a very low milk urea in early lactation, you might need to talk to a ruminant nutritionist and potentially do some feed testing to look at your diet to see whether you're genuinely protein deficient for that herd or whether it's just because you've got a heap of fresh cows tumbling into the herd all at once. 
and breed effects seem real. Apparently, uh, juicy cows on average do run slightly higher milk urea values than, than our friends, the black and white cows. So it's not necessarily right to be uh, comparing milk urea results from your herd with uh, perhaps your neighbour or friend down the road if you've got quite different genetics. You know, you've got Kiwi Cross versus a real Holstein tall type black and white cow. So we'll talk a bit more about this, but we reckon it's probably better to compare values within your own herd and between seasons for your herd that obviously you can access on uh, the dairy company apps to be able to compare that. As we said, other factors might influence milk urea on an individual cow basis, but look, at, at the end of the day, very few people, except maybe in the research capacity, will do individual cow milk urea testing, so you kind of dilute it all down together in the bulk sample. So things like uh, cows with mastitis will have a higher milk urea than healthy cows. Heifers might sometimes have slightly lower milk urea values in mixed-age cows and high-yielding cows. Uh, will often have higher milk urea readings and lower yielding cows. But yeah, for us here in New Zealand, seasonal calving, uh, spring calving herds, bulk milk urea interpretation, typically we're looking at high levels reflecting lots of uh, high quality pasture and perhaps low levels when we feed a lot of low protein supplements like maize silage or sometimes through the summer with dried out summer pasture that hasn't got a lot of legumes in it. But yeah, we'll, we'll get into this topic next. Before we talk about interpreting milk urea, we're going to go into a bit of detail around how milk urea is reported in different ways. And because we've now got quite an international-based audience tuning in from around the world, we, we just probably need to cover this issue. Also, for those of you who spend a lot of time on Google finding out information about milk urea, we've got to be really careful because... There's different ways that milk urea is reported, either as true milk urea or as milk urea nitrogen. So it's MU versus MUN. As you know, you guys will know from your fertilizer backgrounds, remembering urea contains 46% nitrogen. So if you read about milk urea nitrogen, the value will be a lot lower uh, for milk urea nitrogen than for the equivalent amount of milk urea. But let's frame this up. First off, uh, here in New Zealand, our bulk vat or bulk tank milk urea is literally that, milk urea, not milk urea nitrogen. Now, here we have our milk urea reported on a milligrams of milk urea per deciliter of milk basis. So that's mg slash dl. Now, this won't always be the case in some other countries, so that might be different. For example, you might have your milk urea or milk urea nitrogen reported on the basis of millimoles of milk urea or milk urea nitrogen per litre of milk. So that's the first difference for some different countries or perhaps uh, any research papers you've read, is that we've got different units, so that's milligrams per deciliter of milk versus millimoles per litre of milk difference. And as we mentioned, uh, this other important point that milk urea is reported literally as milk urea or milk urea nitrogen. Oh dear, it's, sorry to be confusing, but this is important as a point to labour on this, I guess. Milk urea is the amount of total milk urea in the milk 
and that's remembering the whole uh, urea molecule contains nitrogen, carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. On the other hand, milk urea nitrogen is literally reporting just the amount of nitrogen as the component of milk urea. With this in mind, if you want to convert milk urea values like that we have reported here in New Zealand by our milk companies to milk urea nitrogen, you're going to have to take your milk urea value from your New Zealand dairy company and multiply it by 0.46 because urea contains 46% nitrogen. So yeah, sorry to confuse this, but we've got to be really careful. A lot of international literature and uh, just basic stuff on the internet will often use milk urea and milk urea nitrogen interchangeably, and the numbers are not the same. So be real careful if you're relying on Google for advice around what cut points you should use as to what's a high or low or normal value for milk urea. So for Kiwi listeners, to sum up on our milk urea... To reiterate, to say yeah again, is our milk urea values are exactly that, milk urea, not milk urea nitrogen. That said, um, some papers that have been published over the last 20 years or so through like New Zealand Society of Animal Production, for example, a lot of that research data is based on milk urea nitrogen. Similarly, if you Google and find um, some good American references that say your target milk urea nitrogen values should should lie between 14 and 18 milligrams of milk urea nitrogen per deciliter of milk. In other words, we have to convert that back to milk urea to interpret it. So what you do is you divide the milk urea nitrogen, in this case let's say 14 uh, milligrams of milk urea nitrogen per uh, deciliter of milk, and you divide it by 0.46, and that'll give you closer to 30 milligrams of milk urea as a target normal range and similarly if the American uh, reference says 14 to 18 milligrams of milk urea nitrogen per deciliter of milk divide that 18 by uh, 0.46 and that's 39 milligrams so you've immediately taken that American reference and converted it into a fit for purpose value for New Zealand which says that uh, on a milk urea per deciliter of milk uh, that we that our normal range is 30 to 39 if you look at uh, New Zealand-based references, they will typically be reported in milk urea, and so a commonly cited typical normal range for New Zealand dairy cows is somewhere maybe 20, 22, up to 40 milligrams of milk urea per deciliter of milk. To convert it, just to remind you, convert milk urea nitrogen to milk urea, we need to divide the American milk urea nitrogen values by 0.46 and then the other way around, to convert milk urea like we have in New Zealand to milk urea nitrogen values, we multiply by 0.46. What we're saying is, do make sure you know, firstly, the units that your dairy factory is reporting your milk urea in, and whether it's milk urea or milk urea nitrogen. And good old Google, there's a wealth of information out there. Just make sure you know uh, what that reference is saying, if it's milk urea or milk urea nitrogen. Back to our NZ farms, we normally say 22 to 40 milligrams of milk urea per deciliter of milk, and quite often we'll commonly see values of milk urea well above uh, 40 milligrams of milk urea per deciliter when our cows are eating very lush, leafy, grass-dominant pastures, particularly during the spring and autumn periods when grass is growing a lot uh, of a kilogram's dry matter per hectare per day, and often at those peak 
pasture growth periods, we're not feeding any supplements to the cows and crude protein levels can uh, get upwards of over 30% crude protein. So no wonder our milk urea levels will go high. Just one other point about normal values for milk ureas. Based on overseas work, sometimes we need to adjust what our normal range is based on the current herd production. And a higher producing herd where the cows are really pushing out a lot of litres and eating a lot of feed, we have to uh, uh, provide those uh, cows with a higher normal range for milk urea than a herd that's producing much lower litres. And for total mixed ration herds, of which, look, we have very few here in New Zealand, we've got wintering barns where perhaps dry, non-lactating cows spend their winter, but there are a few total mixed ration herds, but not very many. As we mentioned, the ideal milk urea can be influenced not only by the protein levels in the diet, but also by variations in the fermentable energy of the carbohydrate part of the diet, uh, that if it's quite low, that might not provide enough energy for rumen microbes to kind of reach out and grab spare rumen ammonia. So uh, you're wasting more rumen ammonia that shows up as higher milk urea. So sometimes our fix-it strategies for higher milk urea with total mixed ration herds isn't necessarily about just feeding less protein or feeding less rumen degradable protein, but rather our target is to try and fix up issues around relatively poor fermentability of carbohydrates in the diet. Given the New Zealand focus to these podcasts, we're not going to talk any more about how um, TMR or high PMR or partial mixed ration herds might need to tweak the diet, but any of you that do have higher input systems, chances are you're working with a, a good ruminant nutritionist already and you can talk about higher milk ureas to your nutritionist uh, or if you don't have a nutritionist, maybe seek some advice about high milk ureas in these high input herds. Now we mentioned briefly about that high rumen ammonia tends to be highly correlated with high blood and milk urea and in turn those tend to be highly correlated with uh, higher levels of urinary uh, urea excreted on a daily basis. A herd with a higher milk urea is more likely to be excreting more urinary urea than a herd with lower milk values. And there's quite a bit of research and modelling that's been done to try and predict the uh, extent of urinary urea excretion uh, from a cow when she ha also has a higher blood or milk urea. So it's not being monitored currently. That milk urea isn't being monitor monitored currently in a quantitative sense to track environmental loss of urinary urea, but that may be something that we see in the future. So the other reason, apart from uh, environmental loss and inefficiencies with high milk ureas, it also means to the cow and to the dairy business that dietary protein is being wasted. So instead of nitrogen being used for something useful, like being converted into, I don't know, muscle deposition for a young animal growing or for milk protein manufacture for a lactating cow, there are some inefficiencies with losses of nitrogen. If we did have cattle uh, that were on a full total mixed ration diet, maybe fully housed indoors as well, uh, like in other countries outside of New Zealand, for sure, high milk urea is definitely worth tracking and monitoring because with full control or, or largely full control over that diet, you can do things differently if you've got high milk urea. So for TMR-based diet, you could, for example, back off the amount of grass silage or protein meals and feed more of a lower protein type of feed such as maize silage 
But here in New Zealand, as you say, few TMR herds, and it's often harder or usually harder to do much about high milk urea values, particularly when cows are eating 100% of the diet as pasture. If, on the other hand, cows are needing, like for feed budgeting purposes, some supplementary feeds, then obviously we can start to pick and choose different feeds in the diet. For example, uh, bringing maize silage in if you're in the right part of the country where maize is uh, readily grown in the warmer parts of New Zealand. And maize silage, given that it contains somewhere between perhaps 7 to 9% crude protein, is incredibly useful to dilute down the intake of dietary protein, say, than compared to a very high-quality pasture silage. It might have a lot of protein in it and uh, something such as lucerne silage or baleage, similarly, that can, if it's cut uh, very uh, at a very short, lush stage, can also contain a lot of not only protein but rumen degradable protein is a high proportion of that protein. Similarly, if you're not reliant on a lot of silages, then if your cows are eating feed during each milking, like in the in-shed feeding system, then if you've been feeding a protein-based meal or byproduct such as uh, PKE, then you could substitute that feed for a lower protein feed such as cereal grain. That said, you do need to look at this from a nutritional point of view, but also from a overall financial performance of your business. And in years, for example, when PKA is very, very cheap compared to cereal grains, you may be, from a financial point of view, justified to carry on with the PKE, even though that's high protein, rather than necessarily correcting a diet purely for adjusting milk urea. But we are going to talk more about that shortly. Aside from the wastefulness of dietary nitrogen or dietary protein, when our milk urea values are high, in other words, we're not using that dietary protein for something and it's just being lost out the back end as urinary urea. What are some other things that we could potentially be concerned about with the need for your cows to be making a lot of urea to get rid of that surplus uh, rumen and blood ammonia? Well, first up, some feed formulation programs from overseas do include uh, a metabolic cost associated with the excretion of surplus dietary nitrogen as urinary urea. And in some cases, some of these models can really dislike the, the wastefulness of, of uh, nitrogen and, and needing to convert into urinary urea. And often those programs will build in quite an energetic cost that actually results in the potential loss of the production of many litres of milk per cow per day. And sometimes a diet, 30% crude protein diet, 18 kilograms of dry matter consumed per cow can be, you know, four or five litres of milk foregone because of the energetic cost of detoxification. That said, it would appear that our New Zealand cows that eat pasture pretty well all year round seem over time to become more efficient at managing these high crude protein, highly uh, de rumen degradable protein diets when they're exposed to them, you know, all day, every day, day after day. And it might be that our cows are becoming more efficient at managing uh, these high protein diets. So it may be that perhaps the cost of uh, urea detoxification, as modelled by some of our feed formulation programs overseas, aren't quite as severe as a cost of uh, milk production foregone as what is modelled. Now, in terms of what might be happening, it, it might be happening at, at two different levels. Firstly, 
it might be that chronic exposure to high levels of protein and rumen degradable protein, we see our rumen microbes adjust and change populations perhaps to better deal with surplus protein and maybe to become more efficient at converting uh, rumen ammonia back into microbial protein. So that might be one aspect of it. Or the second aspect may be that chronic exposure to surplus nitrogen results in the urea cycle in the liver also becoming more efficient and cranking up to more efficiently and effectively take out surplus uh, rumen ammonia and convert it into urea. So either way, the rumen or the liver, perhaps for us here in New Zealand and in other areas where cows consume highly rumen degradable, uh, high protein diets year round, that perhaps we don't see that same high milk urea values translating to a lot of lost milk production as is modelled by some feed formulation models overseas. The other common concern that's arisen largely from outside of New Zealand and and the temperate uh, regions of Australia is that high milkury values that are suggestive of protein uh, overload might in turn be associated with reduced conception success of cows when they uh, are mated in the presence of these high-protein diets. Now, the idea here is that high levels of ammonia and or perhaps high levels of urea flowing around in the blood may leach across into the uterus, inside the uterus, and make the inside of that uterus a not-quite-so-nice place to be uh, for both the oocyte, or the egg, or for sperm or indeed for the developing conceptus once cows have conceived and are just at this stage just a a cluster of uh, cells. This results in cows that have a higher number of services per conception or simply have a higher uh, number of conception failures. So you've got a low conception rate. In other words, cows that are returning to service uh, within that normal period of 18 to 24 days after she's been mated. So this, as I say, may be conception failure or, in fact, early embryonic death that um, has occurred very, very early on. So she still returns to service within that that short uh, window. So it's not necessarily a a long return, you know, like coming back at uh, day 30 or something like that. So these concerns are likely potentially real and therefore a high-protein diet that uh, results in high milk urea may reduce conception success. But however, this relationship does not seem to be as simple as it might seem. And work that I was involved with, along with a big team of other people at the University of Sydney years ago, showed that actually cows can tolerate exposure to high levels of rumen-degradable protein and therefore have higher milk ureas, but still get in calf absolutely fine provided, and and here's the rider, provided those cows are also gaining weight, like live weight or body condition, at the same time as when she's exposed to lots of protein when she's mated. On the other hand, if the same cow is exposed to lots and lots of rumen degradable protein, but she happens to be either not gaining any weight or, worst case, she's losing live weight or condition at the same time she's exposed to high levels of protein when she's mated, she will fail to conceive. So long story short, if your cows are gaining weight or gaining body condition when they're mated, they are much more likely to conceive 
even if your milk urea levels are high through mating. So it's very much an interaction with energy balance and cows in a positive energy balance that are gaining weight can tolerate much better the negative effects of high levels of dietary protein and high levels of milk urea. So that's high levels of milk urea. What about if we go to the totally opposite challenge when sometimes we see unusually low levels of milk urea? And certainly if our New Zealand cows are fed very low protein feeds, such as diets based on, for example, very high levels uh, of maize silage, combined perhaps with cereal grains, also with the bulbs of lifted fodder beet or sugar beet, uh, and we combine those feeds with, say, burnt-off summer pasture that's very grass-dominant and doesn't contain legumes, then for sure we will quite often end up with low levels of milk urea, as is uh, reported for total mixed ration herds that are running a low dietary protein. So, yep, and here in New Zealand we will have occasions where we do see low milk urea values. So, what's the interpretation or the significance of low milk urea values? Well, as we've just mentioned, low dietary protein for sure, but actually, as we've mentioned earlier, for a rapid uh, rate of calving in a spring calving dairy herd, sometimes a low milk urea can be what we call an artefact that's not actually truly reflecting the diet uh, levels of protein, but rather the uh, predominance of early lactational status of lots of our cows. So again, if you've got low milk urea and early lactation, just remember that when you're interpreting it. On the other hand, back to the diet side of it, if we suspect that your low milk ureas are really truly reflecting an issue with the diet because of low protein feeds, then obviously the only way to link low milk urea with your diet is firstly to look at what is in the diet, the proportions of different feeds, and then most likely then we need to do some feed testing to test for the whole quality of the diet, the individual components of a diet, but also um, protein, of course, is the main thing we're looking at. Now, sometimes in herds that are consuming a 100% pasture-based diet, we can still sometimes see low milk urea values. Now, as we mentioned over the summer, this might be burnt off uh, grass-dominant pastures without a lot of legumes or no legumes. And in fact, those are going to be problems for your dairy herd, both in terms of not only protein being lacking, but also energy too, if that quality is rather poor. And in some situations, we do need to act on this. But again, you've got to feed test these summer pastures, particularly if your pastures are a bit more run out. You know, they don't have a lot of desirable species. Perhaps in the Waikato, you've got a lot of summer grasses coming through. They can genuinely become deficient in protein. So alongside feed testing, we, I guess, look for other signs in your cows for signs of dietary protein deficiency. Now, these are quite often hard to pinpoint just looking at your cows. We might be looking for things such a lower than expected level of milk production, but remembering that typically in New Zealand, energy is our first limiting nutrient. So low levels of milk production on a burnt-off summer pasture may be reflecting not only low protein but also low energy intake. If, on the other hand, we've got a low milk urea and lots of energy, which can happen, and we'll talk about this shortly, is that you might see cows, particularly cows from mid-lactation onwards and certainly into the later stages of lactation, that cows are getting rather fat rather quickly. Now that's 
really nice to see good cow condition on cows, but not if you have spring calving cows that get to perhaps January after Christmas and uh, and the younger cows particularly are going uh, very fat and perhaps drying themselves off. There's a range of reasons why cows will dry themselves off after Christmas. Uh, quite often it's straight genetics. Uh, younger cows that are a little bit too small compared to how big they need to be and they decide to fatten and grow instead of making milk. But yeah, protein deficiency after Christmas may show up as uh, a lot of a high proportion of your cows gaining condition, which is lovely to see, uh, but they're not producing a lot of milk. Sometimes we can look at the, the dung of the cows and we're looking uh, for evidence of undigested fibre in the dung. It's just that the, the rumen isn't working particularly well because we don't have enough rumen amino acids or ammonia or peptides, and that rumen isn't uh, as effective as it should be at breaking down fibre, and those rumen bugs are running short on nitrogen just for them to do their day job of digesting fibre. If you have any concerns, the first thing that we'd strongly advise is, is getting a, a qualified ruminant nutritionist involved to help troubleshoot what's going on. We can look at feeds in the paddock and the pasture and supplements. We can look at the cows, but sometimes we do need to do some feed sampling and your qualified ruminant nutritionist using a feed formulation program uh, will be able to look at not only total crude protein but other aspects around what may be going on. For example, some models uh, have the capacity to predict levels of ammonia and amino acids in the rumen, for example, and we can decide if the rumen is actually getting quite hungry. So yeah, definitely um, seek some, some advice rather than just chucking in extra protein or other things without having any advice. Now that's over the summer. Occasionally, uh, after long wet winters, and certainly new part, well, most of New Zealand and uh, southeastern Australia have had a very long wet winter this uh, 2022 when we're recording this. And long wet winters can cause a lot of leaching of plant available nutrients, including nitrogen, that takes those nutrients that the plants need away from the root zone uh, of our, well, typically our ryegrass clover pastures. And because those pastures are hungry for nitrogen, we can see, after these long wet winters, rather low levels of pasture protein. And therefore, uh, with these autumn and winter-saved pastures that have been uh, shut up and standing there for the winter, these herds in early lactation might actually throw some relatively low milk urea values, despite being offered uh, plenty of what looks to the eye like rather green pasture that in theory should contain ample protein for these early lactation cows. So yeah, leaching or loss of nitrogen um, beneath the pasture out of the root zone of our pastures is the number one reason for being concerned. On the other hand, we have the other extreme where we have lovely warm winters, and particularly June, and we seem to be seeing warmer uh, weather into June every year here in New Zealand, and you can get some wonderful growth of very leafy, nice-looking pastures through June. And then if winter arrives with a vengeance in July and early August, some of those higher the normal average pasture covers, so the top end of your pasture wedge, get frosted. Or if they're very high pasture covers, they start to tip over, sort of that, you know, 3,000, 3,200 pasture cover. And if the frosts take out a lot of that green material, we end up with quite rank and stemmy pastures at the top end of your pasture curve. And look, at the end of the day, more dead material and less 
green leaf means that again with this rank and stemmy stuff for the cows to eat there's actually not enough protein and milk ureas may be lower than normal. So what does low dietary protein mean for freshly calved cows? Look, how fresh cows respond to low dietary protein depends on a few things, such as particularly the genetic merit of an individual cow and how strong her drive is to produce milk, uh, even when dietary protein is limiting. So some of those cows may uh, try to mobilise uh, body protein uh, to actually uh, meet her demands for lactation. As well, if uh, dietary protein is limiting uh, potential milk production, but the diet contains a heap of energy, she'll more likely respond by not producing as much milk, but will instead use that extra energy to keep good body condition on her back. So the herd may not be producing as much milk in other years in early lactation, and yet body condition score is awesome, like the cows look in really good nick. However, as peak lactation approaches with these herds that are um, quite good condition and not producing a lot of milk early in lactation, as you reach the end of your first grazing round and you start back onto better quality pasture, quite often that's had a, uh, a top-up uh, with nitrogen-containing fertilisers, the quality of protein in the diet improves and those well-conditioned cows start to mobilise more condition off their backs just when we thought that they should be heading into peak lactation and actually gaining weight heading towards mating. If you're tracking body condition score of your herd with regular monitoring, you might be perplexed to see cows not losing a lot of weight early on and you've, you know, you're feeling quite pleased uh, with cow condition early on but then they may start to lose weight as they hit this better quality high protein second grazing round pastures. And that may also happen uh, at a time when grass growth rates are really starting to, to pump along well and you stop feeding some of your lower protein feeds like maize silage or cereal grains when pasture growth rates start to kick away. So we end up with this inadvertent little bit of loss of condition and then starting to gain an early lactation and then we get a second uh, loss of condition as they hit that, that high protein pasture. Now, do we do anything about these early lactation low levels of protein but high levels of energy keeping cows in good condition during early lactation? Now, I guess it's a personal choice uh, and as advised by your nutritionist, but we might argue that lower protein during early lactation, uh, yet good en levels of energy, is actually quite a good thing by being protective for loss of body condition. <laughs> Within reason, of course, we want them to produce still acceptable amounts of milk. So with low-protein diets and early lactation, for example, that contain a, a lot of maize silage and not much pasture, uh, might not support enough milk production at all. But on the other hand, if you're feeding moderate levels of maize silage and protein is restricting milk production just a little a little bit, then cows retaining a bit of back fat isn't actually a bad thing within reason, particularly um, perhaps if your nutritionist and vet are working with you to try and improve mating performance, getting cows to hang on to condition and early lactation through low protein feeds can sometimes, not for all herds, but sometimes not be a bad thing. So the reason we mention this, this low protein in uh, early lactation is that, of course, um, some of you that pick up low milk ureas may want to immediately fix this low protein or fix this low milk urea issue. 
And in fact, it may be better not to fix that low protein at all. It may be better to uh, not fix that low milk urea problem, if you see it as a problem at all. So remembering it may be just that you've got a lot of fresh cows going in the vat, as we mentioned, or the fact that you do have uh, a genuinely low protein diet, uh, so long as it's got enough energy, it may not necessarily be a bad thing. Say, for example, if you choose you to fix your low milk urea in early lactation, say by adding uh, something such as soy or canola meal during early lactation, for sure you can balance that diet and those high quality protein meals will drive production. We do, however, have to be careful. If we feed higher amounts of very high quality protein meals in early lactation, but we haven't balanced the diet with adequate energy, lots of um, good quality pasture, uh, perhaps maize silage, cereal grains, we can certainly end up fixing your milk urea problem, that'll come up, but you may stimulate so much milk production that cows inadvertently strip too much body condition off their backs between calving and mating, and that may create a mating dilemma, uh, potentially of either reduced submission rates and or reduced conception rates if cows have stripped a lot of condition in early lactation. So I guess the key advice here is do discuss concerns with low milk urease and early lactation with your qualified ruminant nutritionist. Uh, but what we do suggest is don't necessarily simply try to fix a low milk urea problem in spring calving herds during August or early September just by chucking a lot of it potentially expensive and potentially problem-causing uh, protein meals in early lactation. Because we need to look at the cows, we need to feed sample, we need to look at other things such as uh, milk protein, milk fat, protein to fat ratio and, and other indications of uh, if we are creating other problems such as negative energy balance by genuinely trying to fix a milk urea problem. And of course, for many of you, the other aspect around trying to fix an early lactation low milk urea value uh, on your vat milk is actually if you're feeding just pasture and perhaps a bit of pasture baleage, there's not much that we can do anyway. Uh, you're not going to change your, your dairying system, the feed system, just trying to fix your milk urea values. Um, they will naturally increase as pasture starts to grow, as the benefits of perhaps fertilising pastures with uh, nitrogenous fertilisers, perhaps ammo fertiliser for sulphur and nitrogen, they'll get things greening up nicely. So you, look, things will correct as well as your cows approach peak lactation, they will naturally produce more milk urea as they're uh, eating more. On the other hand, those of you feeding blends, uh, perhaps of cereal grains, meals, etc., three-inch head feeding system, or perhaps you're feeding a partial mixed ration on a feed pad, well, you could choose, supported by some uh, good advice from your qualified nutritionist, to possibly slightly adjust the diet if it seems to be genuinely low in crude protein. But we'd advise using a feed formulation program that's able to predict uh, the response of your cows based on the amounts and the types of feeds that you feed. In some cases, if your cows are really well fed, they're in great body condition uh, and they're doing milk production, I guess that's not far off other years. Actually, I'd be suggesting we're better to leave uh, that feeding system alone and be confident that the milk urea will come up as pastures freshen up and, and take off with pasture growth rates with warmer weather. Okay then, let's start to wrap up this podcast now and sum up where we've got to on this milk urea topic. So first up, 
for sure. Uh, we all agree that milky rear monitoring is a very useful thing to track uh, your herd looking at things such as probable dietary protein, etc. And it's most useful, I guess, to look at uh, within seasons and between seasons changes in milky rear concentrations because remembering that not all herds are created equal, different genetic base, uh, different feeds, different pasture species, all different things. So it's it's always good to, to share values um, with your, your friends and family or neighbouring herds, uh, particularly if you're seeing regionally different values of milky rear and in fact protein and fat, which we do see from year to year to look for trends. But in terms of absolute numeric value, probably best to, to compare within your herd uh, rather than between herds, given all those differences, cow genetics, etc. Second, we talked about some care that's needed with looking at different reported measures of milk urea, remembering if it's milk urea or milk urea nitrogen, which are very different values. And those values that can be most often reported in terms of milk urea per deciliter of milk, it's probably the most common reference range, milk urea, milk urea, nitrogen, <laughs> milligrams per deciliter of milk. Gosh, that's a tongue twister. And of course, uh, other uh, values you'll sometimes see are where milk urea or milk urea nitrogen are reported in units of millimoles of milk urea, milk urea nitrogen per litre of milk, which is totally different from milligrams <laughs> per deciliter of milk. Goodness. So we all agree that's a horribly confusing thing to have to work through. But uh, yeah, you may have to convert your values to another value if you're finding reference ranges, etc. online through Google. You'll remember that very high levels of milk urea are suggestive of the wastage of uh, too much dietary protein, particularly if it's highly rumen degradable. And that's quite often the case with lush, very high quality, temperate grass-based pastures here in New Zealand and southeastern regions of Australia. So sure, um, high milk ureas imply we are indeed wasting dietary protein, which isn't terribly helpful from a feed conversion efficiency point of view. And as well as that, higher milk urea values imply that actually our cows are urinating quite a bit of nitrogen as urea at the back end onto pasture, which is becoming clearly under a high degree of scrutiny from an environmental point of view with uh, nitrogen loss to water. And there's some real concerns around that. As well as that, we discussed that high milk urea and therefore high dietary protein may be associated with reduced conception success or perhaps early embryonic death if the cows are also losing weight at the same time that they're exposed to high protein. So again, cows can handle high levels of milk urea and high levels of dietary protein and can, will conceive successfully, but they need to be on a rising plane of nutrition, a positive energy balance. These high milk ureas are... Uh, bit of a challenge here in New Zealand where often it's neither practical nor cost effective to fix a high milk urea value for pasture-based herds, particularly at peak lactation where a lot of our herds are on 100% of the diet uh, as pasture and we don't have any practical abilities to do much about it. On the other hand, for higher input dairy businesses, with the help of a qualified ruminant nutritionist, you might choose to change the diet around if you're feeding a lot of supplementary feeds. So uh, spring calving herd in October, if you are a system five herd, you may be choosing to feed 
lower levels of dietary protein by substituting, for example, you might be feeding leucine silage at peak lactation and instead it may be uh, indicated to feed maize silage as one example. Then the other extreme, very low levels of milk urea, do suggest that potentially the diet is running low on dietary protein, something that can be demonstrated in more detail by looking at your different components of, of the diet of your herd and likely will be doing some feed testing just to see levels of protein, also carbohydrates in the diet. And for sure, look, a qualified nutritionist will be um, very able to help you if you have an ongoing problem with milk urea. So uh, usually it's worth getting advice and don't do risky things like chucking urea into a side feed silage wagon, chock all the maize silage, like please don't do that. Urea toxicity is a real concern and it may not even be indicated. You may instead actually need protein meal, um, DDG, something else, not necessarily chucking urea in and do not do this without the advice um, of a, a qualified nutritionist or your veterinarian. So all up, finishing up, milk urea is certainly something useful to track, um, but it's really a proxy. It's just, it's a indicator of what might be going on with your cows in terms of their diet. So it's, in our opinion, milk urea is something to track, but usually it's a conversation starter, I guess. It's something to say, well, it's low, therefore what do we need to look at in the next level of detail with the diet, the quality of the diet, the cows themselves and their well-being, as well as other measures on farm. So I tend not to look at milk urea in total isolation from everything else on farm. Anyway, that's us. It's another podcast done and dusted. On behalf of myself, Charlotte Westwood and our sponsors, PG Rights and Seeds, we'd just like to say thanks heaps once again for joining us today. We really uh, hope that this milk urea topic has been useful as you continue to monitor all those various numbers on your docket uh, or your dairy company phone apps alongside looking at your feeds and of course your cows themselves. For more information about all things to do with ruminant nutrition or look to ask any questions or to post your own experiences around using milk urea to balance diets or monitoring milk components or just whatever, do head over to, uh, to Facebook, search up the Rumin Room Facebook group and join in with our uh, extensive ruminant nutrition community there. But yeah, thanks again for tuning in. Hope you have an amazing day. Cheers. Cheers.